Again, we're in such a performance-driven society that it creates this false sense of what needs to be produced, which creates an imposter syndrome. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. This week, I'm excited to introduce you to Kathy Heller. And before we get started, just a reminder that this podcast is for general educational purposes, and we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with licensed professionals accordingly. We are going to be talking about some mental health stuff today, but I think in a way that really applies to everyone. As I was doing research for this, Kathy, I came from corporate America. I had a long career as a executive in a very male-dominated field. And there were a lot of things that came up for me as we, as I started doing the research. So I'm excited to Talk about a topic that I think is more broad for people. And oftentimes I don't think we diagnose imposter syndrome, right? Like it's not something that you go to a doctor and you're like, oh, this is what you have. But it's more something that we can recognize if we understand what it is, then we have the opportunity to recognize that it's happening in the moment and hopefully reframe and position ourselves to then believe in ourselves to empower and to do all those things to live a better life. So beautiful. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm glad I... <laughs> I think you just did the whole show. I love that. That was perfect. Your podcast, the Kathy Heller podcast, has had 35 million downloads and you featured a lot of successful authors, celebrities, and leaders who evidently all have also felt the same way, right? If we think about someone um, who... Like Matthew McConaughey, are you kidding? He's iconic. Like, how could he possibly feel like he has imposter syndrome? And so I'm excited to talk with you about this and also remind all of us that this is something that we all experience and we don't have to, right? We can move forward in it. Welcome to the show. Can you tell us more about yourself that maybe I forgot or didn't include? You did a great job. I'm Kathy. I have three daughters. I have four kittens. I've been living in Los Angeles for 20 years. And I love this conversation because I feel like I once heard a rabbi of mine say that the opposite of depression might be purpose. And I like the might because we don't really know. These are big things to say. But I also like the idea. And I think that I say that to begin because when I was growing up, my parents had a very difficult marriage that wound up ending in a really messy divorce. And my mom was very heartsick and struggled with so much depression. And we just went through one of those like very hard seasons where we didn't have any money. And my dad was living his new life with his new family. And there was a lot of feeling of brokenness around and not a lot of well-being and not a lot of happiness. And I think that propelled me into a search for how can this feel different? How can life feel much more resonant and joyful? Otherwise, what is the point? And so when I was in college, I started studying philosophy and religions, and I was looking at Buddhism and taking yoga classes and studying all different kinds of thoughts to see if there was something more and if I could grasp something that would give life this view that was more meaningful than what I had seen. And there was so much there. There was just so much there. And I started to feel like we, we all live in like a virtual reality. Because depending on what you're thinking or depending on what you're perceiving, you could be sitting next to someone on the very same bench in the same park and you're seeing the world totally differently. So it's amazing, right, how if we select our thoughts the way we select the clothes we're going to wear for the day, we have a very different kind of day. If you're wearing a bathing suit, like right now it's pouring rain in L.A., I'd have a very different kind of day if I was wearing flip-flops and a bathing suit today than if I was wearing a jacket and had a raincoat and all of that stuff, right? So it's like we we need to start to be aware of where we go unaware. And I say that because since I I went through something that was not so pleasant as a kid, 
I really decided to go into it gangbusters. And so I studied for three years at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center, which was so cool because I could just see like all of the data and all of the ways that the brain works and that we are wired. And I feel like it's almost funny. Like we know more about our iPhone than we know about our well-being. And it's actually very simple. It's not complicated, but the mind can be such a blizzard of thoughts that it feels impossible to get free from when really, if you just study it, you get it really fast. Any per my six-year-old would get it if I showed it to her. In fact, we went to a museum. We were in Florida visiting my parents and we went to, we went to this science museum and they had a display of a human brain and you pushed a button, which she did. She's only six. And when you push this button, it showed like inside of the brain, it showed these little branches, let's say. And one thought would light up and then it showed how it would trigger another 400 thoughts. And then it showed how those thoughts would trigger a chemical inside of the brain. It could be dopamine, it could be serotonin, it could be cortisol. And she got it because they made it really interactive. And so when I was sitting there studying at UCLA, I was thinking every day, I can't believe the whole world is not sitting in this lecture hall because this feels so much more important than any class on anything else. If every kid in fifth grade just learned the way we work, we would have a totally different society and you wouldn't need to do any kind of religion. You would just be like, this is just some basics. Now, I'm not saying that all that other stuff, because I am very spiritual, I'm Jewish, I'm very connected to like God and this universe and all that stuff. But what I'm saying is just the basics, just the basic of how your brain works, how your nervous system is plugged into your immune system. That's amazing. How cortisol is addictive and more addictive than nicotine. People don't realize that they actually have a pharmacy inside of their bodies, which starts with their thoughts and that their thoughts trigger a chemical. Nobody really gets that. And when you start to see it, you can't not see it because it's in every single study, everywhere you look, and it's not woo-woo, it's just the brain. And then you say, whoa, what's going on? And so what's going on in terms of the imposter syndrome that you mentioned that everyone has is that everyone has a brain like this. And what does that mean? It means that from the ages of zero to eight, and these, I'm just repeating to you things that you've probably been talking about yourself and things that people have said, because these are the basics. This is just like ABC, one, two, three. Okay, so the basics are that when we're growing from the ages of zero to seven, we have a sponge-like quality to us and we absorb. And that creates, if a computer programmer sat down with ones and zeros and made a piece of software that would go into my computer, right? That software would play and it would generate a program or it would generate a shape or some image on the screen. We literally develop a software from zero to eight. So depending on your environment, depending on who you're around, depending on what you're picking up, even if your parents are telling you one thing, but living out something different, you're picking up all of it, okay? And by the age of eight, you become programmed, right? With this, there's just a loop of things that you think and perceive. What happens though, is that you start to realize that you have been unconscious of this program. And you can, this is what's really cool about the brain is there's a neuroplasticity. There's, a, there's such a ability to change that in the brain, which means if every day has been like Groundhog Day, and you pretty much feel on a scale of zero to 10, a good day is a six. You're never really at a 10. You could change that because how you think is determining how you're feeling and how you're feeling is determining a lot of what you're doing and saying and your behavior, right? So this is basic. And so I say that, of course, everyone's got imposter syndrome because one of the things that happens is that this amygdala that we have, this part of the brain that we have that gets us really stressed out, it sees everything as a threat. It sees everything through this negative bias, right? And what happens then? We feel like we are imposters. We have to prove ourselves. We have to be impressive. We're never enough. There's just this constant feeling that we are up against something so big. Truth is that when people walk into a room before they've said a word, 
before they've shown you what tricks they can do or what they've got in their bank account, you already feel their energy. You can feel a person's energy from the second they walk in the room. You can just feel, do you trust this person? Do you feel like this person is bringing you up or bringing you down? Why? Because we literally bring in the world. This It's a vibration. There's like energy. Atoms are 99% energy and only 1% a particle, which means that everything is actually energy. We just don't perceive it that way. But if you ask Einstein, he would say, you should know that the world is actually not in 3D. It's in 10D. It's 10 dimensions because it's all energetic. It's really like one field. It's one connected field. It's a pool. You can't really say this part of the pool is not connected to the shallow and it's all one part of the same body of water. So are we. And so we forget because we get caught in this old loop. And so what I have found is that the most impressive things are the things we all have, which is generosity, compassion, right? Love. And when we know that, we don't feel like imposters because every single one of us has the credentials to be loving, to be kind, to be open-hearted. And really other people, because they're not robots, they're people, they're most impressed by the loving, open-hearted, vulnerable, joyful, allowing, gracious version of you. And so I learned that through my own sort of journey of living my life, plus studying, plus I spent three years living in Jerusalem, studying Kabbalah before I went to UCLA. And all of the studying that I did led me back to You don't need to be an imposter if you're not trying to be impressive by being somebody bigger than, because if you don't believe in some hierarchy of humans, but you really see this sort of field of energy where we're all bouncing around, then what's really most impressive are the things that we all are overqualified to do, which is to show up and be present, which is to be willing to love someone and listen, all of that stuff. So I love this conversation and I'm so happy you brought it up because I don't think there's anything more important than this conversation. I think from this conversation, there's such freedom and relief. You could build anything you want as long as this stuff is dialed in a different way. Yeah, I love so much of what you said. It reminded me of a reel that I posted, I think on New Year's Day or the day after when I saw somebody else talking about this is your year to be your best self. And their definition of best self was like, get up earlier than everybody else, work harder than everybody else. And it was like a list of comparisons instead of like, what? how do you define what your best self is? And like, how do you go about finding that? And I saw the words and literally it's something I would have said a few years ago. Like I wasn't there. And I went through a lot of the training and learning that you're talking about as a foster parent. I had no idea how much I was personally going to grow and learn from being a foster parent because we talk so much about the amygdala. We talk so much about all of the things that brains learn. And if you're in a trauma setting, if you're in a neglected setting, how that impacts your ability to go through the world and your thoughts. And so instead of approaching my teenagers from the perspective of, oh, you're just being obstinate. I'm going to beat the, not literally, but like figuratively my beliefs into you. That doesn't work. And it didn't work on me as a teenager either, right? All I learned to do was to either fight back or to be docile in the moment that I wanted to, but then retaliate later. And it was a very like toxic learning system for me that then led to a toxic adult approach to getting up before everybody else and let me beat everybody else instead of like, did that ever make me happy? I achieved every single thing I ever set out to achieve. I was an executive before I was 30. I was a vice president before I was 35. I was making more money than I ever thought I could possibly earn. And I was miserable. And yet I kept thinking like, oh, if I just keep pushing harder, then I'll get whatever it is that I think that I want. And it wasn't until I truly stepped back and was willing to take a pay cut and like actually calm my life a little bit to reflect on what was important. And what was important to me was opening my home to be a foster parent. Okay, what do I need to do to be that? I want to I need to have an at-home job. Okay, what does that mean? I'm going to need to make less money. 
And now for the first time in my life, I literally do feel genuinely proud of who I am. And it might not be by somebody else's standards, but I feel good. I don't feel like an imposter, though. It's funny. We started this podcast and you said to me, congrats on all of your success. And I was like, that's awkward. What do you mean? I'm not successful. And it immediately was like, that's an imposter syndrome thought that I think we all have, even if we're satisfied in our lives, even if we've worked to reframe thoughts. And so the last thing I'll say, because I can see that you want to respond, but I love that you brought up Einstein because one of the quotes that I found in like doing some research on imposter syndrome for the show was that he himself is reported as saying to a friend that he essentially feels, he's, he used the words involuntary swindler. Like he feels like he does not live up to the reputation that the world has of his. Right. I just want to remind all of our listeners who it is that you're feeling like you're not good at. It might be mothering, right? Like sometimes we oh as gosh, parents yeah. are so hard on ourselves or it might be whatever job you have where you're not respected by your peers because really they're intimidated by you or whatever it is. Know that the only person that can help you feel confident and comfortable in the job or the task or your life, whatever it is, is you. And I I do wonder why we don't teach this to kids, right? Like, because I was never taught that. I was always taught you need to be better than other people. You need to rise above. You need to work harder. You need to, even from a school perspective, you need to have better grades than everyone in your class so that you can then go on to be, get into the best college so that you can have the best job. It's always, which is exhausting. But before I go forward, I just want to say it is incredibly beautiful, generous, and courageous that you've gone through everything you just shared, including the being a foster parent. I just think that is such a generous, kind act, maybe, you know, more than anything I can think of. So I just tip my hat to you. And I guess what I want to say is I've never met the Dalai Lama. Okay. He just came to mind when we were talking because he seems to me, and this is just, this is a perception. It could be totally not true, but he seems to me like a person who's really happy and not because of what he's achieving, right? He seems to me like a person who has something, it's so inside of him that it just radiates from him. And it's almost something bigger than happiness. It feels like joy. And Andy Grammer was on my podcast and he taught me something I never knew. He said he was looking up the difference between happiness and joy because he was talking about going through a pretty difficult season. And he said, I saw this definition that I just couldn't stop thinking about. He said, which is the joy comes from within, not from outside. And... I think that's what you and I are talking about, where we are raised putting up our ladder against a certain destination, and it's the wrong destination, because everything you just talked about gives over this assumption that if you get the raise and you get the promotion and you have this thing, whatever those things are, then you will have happiness. But that is the opposite of what he's saying, because that is a happiness that comes from something outside of you. And the truth is, our focus equals our feeling, period. So you could be in the most beautiful place. You could have just planned your daughter's bat mitzvah or you're at your best friend's engagement party and everyone you love is in the room and it's perfect and you're stressed because the photographer's late. Like you could have everything going on. You could be on a great vacation with you. I just heard Jerry Seinfeld say he came back from Christmas break And he spent all this money and he took the kids and he goes, don't be fooled by our Instagram pictures. We were arguing on a $20,000 balcony. This is what, this is what, so it's like, we've all had that experience where no matter where you are or what's happening, you're pissed that your mom just criticized or you're pissed, meaning your focus equals your feeling. And so I say this example of the Dalai Lama because he just seems as though Nothing outside of him determines his well-being. He seems, I saw this great quote on Instagram recently, which I loved, and I don't know who said it, but I love it. And it said, instead of trying to protect your energy all the time, what if you project your energy? Meaning, I feel like when I think of someone like him, irregardless of what milestones or goals or successes he achieves, irregardless of what attaboys he gets from the world, 
his focus equals his feeling. And he's focused on probably, I'm going to guess, gratitude. He's probably focused on how he can contribute. He's probably focused on ways in which people in his life might need him or blessings of small miracles, just like getting up every day. And this guy is in exile. His entire community is in exile. And yet he doesn't beat this drum of lack. He beats a drum of joy and it reverberates around the world. And I think people like Mother Teresa was like this. Like, I think that there are people who have figured out that whatever you're seeking is in where you decide, where you choose to focus your thought and your day. And we have much more control over that part than we think. But when we're caught in a system where we're constantly feeding ourselves this idea that in order to finally feel like we are not an imposter, we are the real deal or whatever it is, we have to earn a certain amount and do a certain thing, we'll never ever, we'll never attain it. It will always elude us because it's the wrong video game. You're like playing it the wrong way. It's like playing Super Mario Brothers with the wrong control. And so you just keep bumping into the duck or whatever it was. It's like you have the wrong controller like plug in the you're using an atari controller you need a nintendo controller. if you use the right controller you just have a different experience of our life and i think this is where the western culture gets it wrong a lot because it's all about the next okay that's a cute house but that's a starter home what's your next home oh that's a great thing you have 400 followers but when's your form as if the only destination is in the more as opposed to finding the more in the now when you're just focused a different way. And so for me, having gone through what felt really unpleasant in my childhood, I found myself on a two-week trip to Jerusalem. I had never felt so relieved and free because I was studying something so different, which was mysticism. And I was like, oh my God, this isn't the school of how much can I achieve? This was the school of how much can I plug into what's already here? And how much can I give? And how much can my life maybe generate well-being for other people and being generous and all that? So after, after that two-week trip, I stayed for three years. And then when I came to the state, I came back home, right? I grew up here, but I came, I was like, I'm going to go to UCLA because I wanted from a very sec, I wanted to know this from such a secular scientific point that I could teach it to anyone, regardless if they were Buddhist or Hindu or any, I wanted to just say, I want to know the science so that I could gift this to you. And it doesn't, because science is a unifier, right? Religion can be a barrier. So to me, then I sat there, those three years at UCLA, it was like tripping acid because I was so happy, because I was so present, because I was so aware and I wasn't going unconscious. Since I left there, now it's a practice, right? I'm constantly having to pull my brain back from all the places that my, my old program wants to go. And, and yeah, I go on as many like meditation retreats as I can, but it's never fun. It's like taking vitamins. It's not your favorite thing to do. But then after you do it, you go, hey, God, I did that, right? Because God, was I lost. For, sometimes you wake up, four hours goes by and you go, oh my God, I just became aware that for four hours I've been in stress mode. Like I just lost four hours of my life. So every time I go away to one of these retreats, I say to myself, I don't want to go. And then I come back and say, oh my God, I don't know where I've been for the last four months. I've been in overachiever mode. And so I'm just like everybody else, figuring out how to get back into the zone, back into that free place where I'm focusing, where I feel here, present, full, joyful. And in that place, there is no imposter. The imposter is in the other place where everything is outside and everything is on the other side of achievement. I was thinking as you were talking about the the responsibility that we have or the feelings that we own. I forget the words that you used. The phrase that we use in one of my support groups is that you're responsible for the energy that you bring to the space. And it really reminded me of what you were talking about. And I think it was important for me to learn that because we would come to get support, whether from our own needs or from being able to talk to other people who are going through what we're going through, who can offer empathy and guidance and support. But if you approach the 
concepts that you're bringing instead of I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I need support and help. And instead of if instead you bring energy of this thing that I'm going through or this person in my life is the problem, then you can't solve that, right? Like totally. immediate, you're immediately creating a problem that you right. can't control right. versus I am overwhelmed and I need help either creating boundaries or figuring out what the next steps are. And so that phrase was really powerful and important for me. And I heard a, a lot of what you were talking about reminded me of phrase and needing to be able to create that yeah. line for ourselves. So I feel like we've jumped in, what I want to do is just take a moment to define what imposter syndrome is for our listeners. And we are a very science-based community here. So I love that you're talking about like science is a unifier. Isn't it? It is. That's what's so great about it. It's like math. It's It's like math is math. We can all talk about it, right? Yeah. It's like, this is the fact. You can choose to ignore the fact, but that doesn't change that it's a fact. So I did find two specific studies and one was a systematic review, which was really great. And what they said in that one was that imposter syndrome is increasingly presented in the media and lay literature as a key behavioral health condition, impairing professional performance and contributing to burnout. However, there is no published review of the evidence to guide diagnosis or treatment of patients presenting with imposter syndrome. So They looked at 62 studies, over 14,000 participants, and people self-identified as having imposter syndrome at some point in their life or not, anywhere from 9 to 82%. So if we think about the majority of everybody walking around that you're talking to is feeling this, it reminded me of like being a parent and like early on as a new mom, you're like, I've never been a parent before. Oh, yeah. What am I doing? I'm going to break my kid. I'm going to whatever. And then when your kids are like in elementary school, they think you walk on water and you've got life figured out. And you're like, I don't have life figured out at all. Oh, is this how my parents felt? Because I thought they had it all figured out. Totally. Yeah. It reminded me of all of these phases of my life that had nothing to do with professional performance or burnout that reminded me those things as well. But what was interesting is it then went on to say that imposter syndrome is aligned with depression, anxiety associated with impaired job performance, job dissatisfaction, and burnout when they look at employee populations, including clinicians and scientists. There was actually a lot of information about people who are in STEM type roles who experience this the most and also Mm. minorities, marginalized communities, women, people of color, LGBTQ often feel imposter syndrome a lot as well. Wow, I'm so glad you did that research because I've I've never heard those studies and that's a really powerful, that's a really powerful understanding that this is really rampant. It's like it's more rampant than COVID. It's like this is everywhere. Yeah, and we should be looking at it. I have, I've talked about it so many times and that's why I'm so glad you want to dedicate the show to it because I, I've i gotten so much into it myself that I want to share, which is my friend Mark Rose said to me one day, I thought this was really powerful. He said, every single second of the day, human beings make an unconscious choice. They think they have to choose between authenticity and belonging. And they will choose when they look at the studies, they'll choose belonging, right? So it's like, they're going to choose to go to Thanksgiving dinner and not say certain things about their life or say certain things about who they voted for so that people at the table vote for them. Like you, you feel Unless like you they're belong. an Enneagram eight like me and then they'll just <laughs> alienate everyone by bulldozing their authenticity. <laughs> I actually look up to that very much because I, I think growing up with a dad who was an alcoholic, who was also physically abusive, I have my amygdalas programmed into keep the peace and dance around so everybody's happy so nobody gets mad and throws anything. So I secretly want to be you and I'm such, I'm overcoming being a pleaser. But I say this thing about belonging because I think that at the sort of core of humankind is a need to belong and be accepted. And I think that what happens then turns into imposter syndrome and turns into perfectionism because of the pressure that we put on ourselves to belong. And I say this because I had this woman on my show, Julia Cameron, who wrote this book called The Artist's Way, which is like such a beautiful book. It was written many years ago. I think it sold 30 million copies. And she was married to Martin Scorsese and they then got divorced. 
And she basically wrote this book as a love letter to him because he was going to give up on movie making. This is early, early in his career when something he made did not get all the accolades. And so she wrote this book and having been in a 12-step program herself, she's been sober for many years. She wrote this book about creativity and sobriety. And I bring it up because I think it's so powerful what we can learn out from this. And I said to her when she was on the show, what do you think about people who have this imposter syndrome? And she said, well, let me look at it. Let me look at it through this lens. She said, have you ever been in a preschool classroom? I said, yeah, I have three kids. She said, in that preschool, have you ever seen a classroom filled with kids that are not creative? I said, no. She said, what do you see? I said, there's paint on the stuff. They're in the sandbox. She said, correct, right? And do they love that stuff? I said, no, that's the sensory getting messy. She said, yeah, that's the key word there. Say that again. I said, getting messy. She said, what happens to the preschoolers when they're messy? I said, they come home with like paint on their clothes. She said, that's right. And do they have like sand in their hair? Yeah. She said, when that kid gets to be about seven, 11, 12, 15, 19, you know what happens to that kid? They stop being messy because somebody says something. You thought that was a great poem? That poem is horrible. Or you reach out to be loved by someone and someone judges you because you have acne on your face or something happens between your parents or you see something in middle school. She said, what happens is you start to look around and say, I'm never going to be messy. I'm never going to not be accepted. I'm going to try to control the way people think of me and I'm going to make perfect things or nothing at all. And the perfectionism leads to the imposter syndrome, and it comes from our unwillingness to let ourselves be messy. And so I say to my students, because I do a lot of group coaching and I do these programs a few times a year, and I say the first thing on day one, I say, I want you to, I want you to be a C student in this class because I want C students. I want students that are willing to like play with things and innovate and make risks and take risks and have things to edit and make things that are mediocre and get in the momentum of things because I want you to leave the tendency to try to be this perfect person at the door because it's not gonna serve you. And when they've done studies and they look at the people in this world who've left legacies like a Jim Henson, right? They look at Picasso. These are people who were willing to play until something came through that was actually brilliant. If you go back, I show this to my students that if you go to YouTube, because it's amazing what YouTube has, there's videos of Jim Henson from like 1968 where he's playing with socks. He's putting sock puppets on his hand and he's gluing things to them. And he puts this green sock on his hand and he goes, this looks like a frog, doesn't it? And you say to yourself, can you imagine if this guy walked around with imposter syndrome? He never would have built Kermit. He never would have written all those songs. There'd never have been a Sesame Street. Like the goodness and the magic is on the other side of what? Being messy. So really what I say to people when they tell me they have some kind of an issue with this, I say it's about the lack of courage to just accept yourself in the process. Like nobody would make brownies and pour into a bowl sugar, flour, water, eggs, And then say, these are gross. These are brownies. It's like, wait, this is a process. I'm going to mix them. I'm going to then put them in the oven for 25 to 30 minutes. And then you can tell me if they're brownies, but give it a process. Like nobody who's ever worked in the land has harvested something in the same day that they're planting the seeds. You have to give the time to things to harvest, to grow, to compound, to compost. Again, we're in such a performance-driven society that it creates this false sense of what needs to be produced, which creates an imposter syndrome. However, if you understand that Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran said it great. He said, if you've ever been to a log cabin in the woods and you haven't been there for a while and you go with your friends to have a ski trip, if you turn on that faucet, it won't run clean the first moment. It's gonna be a little bit brown, that water, because you haven't turned it on in a few months. But if you turn the water on, you let it run for 10 seconds, The water will be clear. You can boil it. You can make spaghetti. You can take a shower. You can drink it. You're done. You're fine. You run through the pipes, right? He said, my first 40 songs were just me running through that brown water. I had to just learn to play chords. I would never, he goes, I'd never play you those first 40 songs. He goes, then the second 40 songs were getting better. 
Then he said, I start writing hit song after hit song and people make the mistake and say, I'm not like you. And he says, no, you are like me, but I was willing to tolerate making mediocre things in order to get to a place where I found my sound, where next thing I know, right? Like I, I'll just make this one last point because I just get on this rant because I really want to wake people up. I went to see the Broadway show, Beautiful, which is all about Carol King's life. And she's one of my favorite songwriters. And the first half of the show is her going with Jerry Goffin to this building in New York, the Brill Building, playing song after song and the publisher saying, write something else. This is lousy. This is lousy. And the second half of the show she writes her first solo album, Tapestry, and every song on that record is a number one single. It's one of the only albums in history where every song was number one. People said her first album, she's a genius. And if you know her life story, that was like her 200th song. Like she practiced. If you read the book Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the Beatles. The Beatles were a band for eight years actually working in a strip club as a band, okay? They worked in like a gentleman's club. I don't know if it was exactly a strip club, but it was like, like that. They knew each other so well. They knew exactly when they would play, how they would play it. So when they decided to write their own music, the way in which they had a familiarity allowed them. So what I'm saying is that preschool classroom is where we need to be. We need to get back to a place where we really come back to the joy of being creative, the joy of showing up every day without being a perfect parent, without being this, and just giving ourselves the grace to say, this isn't about being perfect, right? This is about getting excited. And then you know what happens when you let go of that pressure, the most amazing creative things will eventually come out of you because you won't be able to help it. Because the more you show up and practice anything, you get good at it. And then if you're really good at it, something pretty cool happens and other people start to notice it. But we look at highlight reels on Instagram and when we compare ourselves and we go, she doesn't, I'm, she doesn't have the messy life that I have. It's, oh, yes, she does. Yes, she does, right? Beyonce has gone through stuff with her marriage. We all heard about that. And it's, you wouldn't know that if you just looked at the images that are being posted. She's only worthy of being called a queen because she has the courage to deal with the same problems and the same stuff. And it is amazing, but it's from having the capacity. Anyone who's made something brilliant has had tremendous capacity to wade through the brown sludgy water and I think what's sad is that every human being has this magical kind of thing that they do well, but they don't even find it because they're riddled with this pressure of needing to be a perfect thing. And that's just nobody's born Mozart on day one. It just doesn't happen. This podcast is sponsored by Shopify. It's the sound to start selling on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. As a consumer, I love the ease of using Shopify, which has thousands of integrations and third-party apps. And Shopify supports small business entrepreneurs with resources once reserved for big businesses, allowing you to discover endless possibility by reinventing tools of growth for millions of businesses, helping them succeed every day, Discover inspiration in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce can be a force for good. And discover your possible with more people every day. Every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur like you makes their first sale on Shopify. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wholeview, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wholeview to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash wholeview.
Did you hear the news? The first federal personal care law update since 1938 was passed on December 29th, 2022. Y'all, it's Beauty Counter's 10-year anniversary, and we did it. Our advocacy efforts led to health-protective, bipartisan, legislative change. Thank you for supporting my business, for contacting your legislators, and for being part of this community. I am so proud of what we have accomplished, but we aren't done yet. While this is huge, it's not perfect. So we will be continuing to fight this good fight. Want to give the brand that literally changed America's personal care industry a try? I've got an exclusive offer for you. Give Beauty Counter a try with code CLEANFORALL20. And if you don't love it, you have 60 days to return it. No questions asked. Even better, let me recommend a few products for you. I love helping you pick out just the right thing to love the skin that you're in. Email me, stacy at realeverything.com if you want help. Shopping with me supports my woman-owned small business, and you're voting with your wallet by choosing a certified B Corp whose mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws while also giving back to people and the planet through sustainable fair trade ingredients. Go to beautycounter.com slash Toth, just like any other website, and choose me. S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, I I did two shows with Jeffrey Marsh. Are you familiar with their work? And we talked a lot about perfectionism and how incredibly difficult it is on your health because you're constantly not happy you're striving for a measure that is literally unattainable because perfectionism does not exist perfect does not exist we tell ourselves oh i just need to do better i just need to do this thing and then but it's like we we call it an under gnome underwear gnome plan here in the house i think it's originally a south park reference but all the teams and my husband were always like when they say okay i'm gonna do this thing and then we say it sounds like an under gnome underwear gnome plan because it's and then what you're going to do this thing and then dot, you think there's the result, like this result is going to happen. But if we back up and we look at the dot, like, how is that going to happen? And we tell ourselves all the time, if I'm just perfect. I'll be happier if I'm just this, like the standard. And that's where I think we get this toxic mindset of feeling like a failure or a fearing failure because if it is impossible, if it is unattainable, you are going to fail at it. And then you're going to be riddled with depression, anxiety, and all these negative feelings instead of, we talked about all these people who are confident and feel good about their lives because they're not striving towards exactly. Exactly. It's it goes back to what you were originally talking about, which is mindset shift of being able to stop some of those toxic thoughts and tell you, why am why do I care if my grass is greener than my neighbors? Like exactly. that actually make a difference in anybody's life. Is that truly going to make me more happy or am I just going to create more comparison syndrome? And it was not surprising to me. One of the articles that I really loved reading, educating myself before we got on was this article in the Harvard Business Review that there's a quote that says, imposter syndrome is especially prevalent in biased, toxic cultures that value individualism and overwork. And it goes on to talk uh. about this idea of perfectionism. But if we think about the places in our lives that we've been that included value based on individualism and overwork, I don't necessarily yeah. have a problem with individualism if we're going to say in being individual is inevitable and everybody yeah. has something special. But that's not what's implied here. What's implied here is like, individuals are responsible for elevating the whole, right? And this was how it was in corporate America. Yeah. Bonus system or whatever, right? Like you're letting the whole company down. Oh my gosh, talk about pressure. Right, exactly, one person. So if we have that fear and that mindset, we're going to overwork ourselves. We're going to have standards of perfectionism and we can't achieve those. And it becomes super toxic, especially for marginalized groups that also can't see themselves in the other leaders who are quote-unquote successful. If we're looking across the field of coworkers and I'm in a room where I am the only woman, instead of feeling like, 
oh, wow, I must be really good at my job because I'm the only woman here. Yeah. No, that's not what you're thinking in those moments, especially when you're questioned or criticized or constantly led to feel like, you know what, you need a you need a co-person for this. And there's a whole story in that Harvard Business Review article about this incredible Black woman putting on this huge event and completely being like her work was marginalized. And at the very last minute, they put someone on as like a co-leader with her. And that person got all the credit for all the work that she had done. And for a really long time, she felt like a failure and she felt, oh, I let everybody down. And it took time for her to be away from having done that job and done all that work to realize like, no, they were the ones who was not respecting the work that I was doing and were questioning everything that then made me question everything. And I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone that I could go to talk about these things, which I thought was really perspective also because there was a KPMG study done that talked about what can we do if we're feeling like we have imposter syndrome. And when they were looking at people in the workplace, they said that 47% of people felt like having a supportive performance manager improved their feelings of imposter syndrome. And 72% of executive women said that they took advice from a mentor or a trusted advisor when doubting their abilities to take on new roles. So if we don't have someone that we feel confidence or trust with that can be that person that lifts us up and helps us remember that this we got this, that what might feel like we're an imposter, we're doing the work, we're amazing, and we're showing up, we're being messy, whatever the thing is, right? What really matters as a parent is just that you're spending time with your kids. You don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to read them 18 books every right. night. You know, that if we have someone to tell us those things, it changes the way that we frame our thoughts around it. Verse, if you have someone who tells you, if you don't breastfeed your child, then they're going to have all these problems. Or oh, yeah. if you don't read, if your child doesn't read by the time they're four years old, they're not going to be successful in life. If you have someone in your life telling you those things, imagine how you feel versus if you have someone in your life who's, you're doing amazing. Your child is fed. You're both like healthy. You're sleeping. This is what's important. You right. need your child to be right. nourished great job. Like the mindset difference that you have is night and day. And I think we can see that when it comes to that very basic equation, but it's more difficult and nuanced when we're talking about things like success when it comes to goals that we set ourselves or professional standards or these kinds of things that we don't give ourselves the same kind of grace with. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Okay, so I like to leave our listeners with actionable steps that they can take to move forward and feel empowered. And I'm wondering, I'm, I mentioned the KPMG study of having a mentor or someone to bounce with. I'm wondering how you see people overcome imposter syndrome or getting over their fears and just generally being able to take action and reframe in a positive way. Do you have things that you've seen be successful for people? Yeah, I feel like sometimes something really simple makes a giant difference. It's like eating breakfast. If you eat breakfast, you have a really different day than if you don't eat till two. And I feel like what we were talking about before, like there's some understanding we can have of how we work as people, right? Like I don't think anyone would go a week or two without brushing their teeth because we now fully all subscribe that we need to brush our teeth probably two to three times a day. Some people do it after every meal or snack. We don't walk around with that same priority on our well-being and understanding our mental hygiene. But that has to happen. If that doesn't happen, it will be like not brushing your teeth for four weeks. And just like you eat breakfast and you take a shower and just like this is part of your life routine and thank goodness because it keeps your physical body on track, you have to make a decision that every single day, it could be five minutes and five minutes is actually a lot. It could be three minutes. The morning when you wake up sometime before you start the routine of the day, before you leave the house, before you finish the coffee, if for three minutes... You can read something that puts you back in the zone or listen to something that puts you back in the zone. That will literally change your entire life. 
because you can't rely on having somebody outside of yourself to come along every day. They might not tell you, I'm here to brush your teeth. You have to be responsible, like you said, for the energy you bring in the room. And so we have to give that to ourselves. And I think about my grandmother who came to this country as an immigrant, whose mother died, who was escaping, he's in murder. I mean, like, like every piece of evidence you would need to just say, game over, I'm out. Every piece of evidence. You don't need any more. And instead, she told me I had no money and I was living in a tenement. We would, she said they were so poor that even the tenement they would get evicted from living in a tenement where there was one toilet per 26 units. There was one toilet outside for 26 families and people are dying from tuberculosis, fleeing, fleeing all of this genocide. And still they had one toilet for 26 people and no money. But she said to me the following, she said, I realized something amazing, Kathy, when I was seven years old, that the library was free. And so my grandmother, even though she never went to school past the age of fifth grade, she learned to read. And she said, those books were amazing because I would read Jane Austen and I would be taken to a different place. And I never had to travel because I would read a book by the kerosene lamp in her room. And she would look at her father stressing and her brother stressing and she would be like, read. And when my parents were going through the divorce, she said to me at the eight, that young age, 12, 13, read a book every day, pick a book, change the way you see the world. And I did. And she and I used to go to the library and not only would we get books that we felt were helpful, but she would say, read autobiographies, read biographies. And so I remember reading a book on Nelson Mandela. And I read this book where Nelson Mandela was sitting in prison in South Africa. And I remember the book where he said, I sat there and said, I'm never going to get out of here. I can't believe I'm here. And then the next day he had a new thought. What if I could get out of here? And then six weeks later, the thought of what if I could get out of here turned into I'm going to start writing letters to the U.S. And next thing he knew, he got a response. And the next thought he had was, I think I'm going to get out of here. And then the next thought he had was, but if I get out of here, who's going to lead this nation? And then six weeks of thinking, who's going to lead this nation? He had a new thought, which was, what if it's me? And then for six weeks, he thought, I think they're getting me out of here. And I think I'm going to get out of here and lead this nation. And he did. And so I read that book and I thought that book changed my life because you can't, there's no holes you can poke in that story. There's no way you can look at that story and tell me he had toxic positivity. This guy was just somebody who decided, right? And my grandmother didn't have toxic positivity. She came from literal hell. And she met my grandfather dancing in Harlem at a club called Roseland. And they became these like dancers and they would perform together. And at those days, they'd be on the radio. They had radio announcers talking about the dance competitions. And then they wound up getting married and he started this company where he put cardboard into men's dress collar, dress shirts, like fancy men's shirts. So they have cardboard in the collars. He came up with this with his brothers. That Then they went door to door and then they made a fortune. And my grandma came from nothing and they didn't even speak English and they had nothing. And so she said to me, this is all about you decide to make it. And so I feel grateful that I stand on the shoulders of people who went through actual hell and then chose to become, find the joy, go to Harlem, make a good night of it, read books. Like she never said, she would say to me, like, you think this is a problem? You think you have problems? Are you insane? You have a computer, you have a resource, you have this, you have running water, get to it. And so I, I'm a second generation American who comes from people who experience like the horrors of the Holocaust and literally losing everything, including her own mother. So to me, I just never walked around with someone's going to come help me. Here's why I'm always upset. It was like, I got to get busy and there might not be anybody coming. So every day, if you can, if you want to change this year and make 2023 amazing, just make a commitment that before you finish breakfast, you read three minutes of something like Nelson Mandela's book and you won't be the same person. That's my prescription. I love it. It's simple and powerful. There was something that you said that I do want to just tease out a little bit because I feel like there is a there the cancel culture is very quick to choose something and then just blanket apply it on everything and so I see this problem when it comes to I both want to be healthy and I don't want to be part of diet culture like I 
want to be able to reframe my mindset and to live a fulfilled, confident, happy, good life. And I don't want to participate in toxic positivity. And I do think that there is such a thing as toxic positivity. And I think that it starts with not accepting the reality of where one is. And I teared up hearing you talk about your grandmother's conditions. I imagined my family of six of being one family and 25 other families trying to share one toilet because we can't even share one toilet. We tried to go to Disney and there was one toilet and it was a nightmare. They had no shower. They used to bathe in the kitchen sink. And here, like you said, with Jerry Seinfeld, and we were arguing in a $20,000 balcony, like here we were on this like super magical vacation. We were, anyway, and we were constantly bickering over whose turn it was to go into the bathroom. And I just, I had this moment where I, could not fathom how difficult that was for 26 families and the conditions, what that would have meant for their living conditions. And we have to acknowledge that was terrible. I think toxic positivity is being, is saying, no, we're not going to think about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're only going to think about the positive stuff. And you can't skip over it. But what I think my grandmother taught me, because her biggest thing was empathy and she had so much of it. So my grandma was famous for taking in stray dogs. And we'd be like, this dog could have great call someone. Put up a sign. Don't, you know, you're an older woman. This was always her thing. Taking in the dogs, her caretakers at the end of her life, she would kiss their hands. And we, when we would go to the supermarket when I was like 12, 14, 19, she would say to the checkout person, the cashier, have you had your hug today? And the person would look at her like, is she creepy? Why is she asking that? And then they would always smile because they would see she's like this sweet old lady. And then she would say, no, get over here. And she would give everyone a hug. I say this because what she taught me was if you're licking your wound, if you're focused on that, you can't be focused on taking care of somebody else. And she said to me that Every single year on the anniversary of her mother's death, she would sit there and bawl her eyes out, right? Like she was aware of how horrible it was. And that allowed her then to appreciate how much she wound up having the food. She would never waste any, all of that. But what she focused, she said on is, I know that my joy will come from actually taking care of other people. And so she was always feeding other people and giving to other people. She went to Mexico seven times. And she didn't live like in the age of the easiest, most beautiful flights. She would go there to volunteer. And I just thought that was like amazing. I go, Grandma, don't you want to try some other country? Like she goes, I don't know. I just want to keep going back there. So she would go to Guadalajara and Oaxaca seven times. And I was just like, okay, at this point, she's not going to see new things. She's just going to help. And so what I'm saying is, I think there's a, if you really actually want to be net positive in the world, not from a toxic place, but from a real place. We live in a very miserable world because it's me focused. It's got to be you focused, like really on some level, because truly that is selfish. When you take care of other people, you feel so good. I just want to end with this. Harvard did a study on happiness. They wanted to know what makes people happy. So they brought people into a study and they said, what do you think would be the conditions for which you'd be happy? And somebody said, more sleep. I need more sleep. I'm totally burnt out. I don't sleep enough. That's why I'm miserable. Great. Got it. What do you think would make you more happy? And the next person said, more money. I need more money. Without this money, I just can't be happy because I'm short on money. Great. The next person, what do you think you need more, more happy? I need more. I better food. I don't have energy. Okay. So they put them in a study and no matter what the person said, they gave it to them. It's a controlled study. So they would give this person money. They would give this person the best conditions to sleep. They just went all in on this study. They took these people at the end of the week, did a psychological review and did a biological review to see if there was any change in their bloodstream and in their numbers. Was there any change in their psychological well-being? Very little change. So they said, can we do something with you guys next week that's different? Sure, they said, let's do it. They come back the next week. And instead of saying, what do you think would make you happy? They said to every participant, what do you think would make the world happier? And somebody said, more money, the same, more money. Great, this week, you're gonna give the same money we gave you last week, you're gonna give it away. They said, what do you think about this? I think this person, this is a mother with like lots of kids, she needs sleep. 
great, we're going to help you figure out a way to go help her do that, right? And so they sent these people off to go take care of other people. And literally, no joke, at the end of the week, these people, psychological well-being was off the chart. They felt so good because their life had actually made a difference. And then biologically, they stopped focusing on all of these other things and they were actually happier. And Dan Buettner, who used to be the head of National Geographic, discovered something called the Blue Zones. The Blue Zones are places in the world where people live the longest. They live into their hundreds. He asked himself, why are these places people were... Why are people living into their hundreds? Is it the weather? Is it the food? Is it the religion? No, it turned out they had different religions. The people in, the, in Loma Linda, they're Seventh-day Adventists. The people who live in Japan, they were practicing Far Eastern religions. It was, he was like, okay, so what do they have in common? They were purpose-driven. They were grandparents, then great-grandparents. They were living into their hundreds. They were meditating every day, eating mostly plant-based, but they did eat meat probably five times a month. But their whole focus... A, they started their day with some kind of meditation or prayer to get beyond themselves. And then B, they're constantly in service. And so he would ask these people, how's the mental health in your family? And they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about. We live in a culture where not only do we compare ourselves to each other, we focus on what's happening for me? How much fun? How much joy? I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but what I'm saying is the actual joy, which is the opposite of toxic positivity, is how did your life by the end of the day feel as though it genuinely added hope, added love, added connection to someone else? Because when you do that, the study is the study. The data is the data. You feel better. And so I'm a person who's been to therapy on and off all my life. I do hypnotherapy. I want to feel all the pain. I go home. My parents are divorced. My dad has cancer. I cry when I need to cry. And it's so important, right? And because of that, I have empathy for everyone else. I have a sense that everyone's been going through something that nobody knows about. And I guess I just focus on how could I, how can I show up? And then it's like very rewarding. And I don't have anything close to any of the answers, but these are just really good conversations to have because I do think these are the things that we can focus on. And this is the way I was raised. So I feel very grateful to have had a grandmother like that because she just demonstrated for me something that I felt I could get behind in a very real way. And it probably has a big impact on the person that I become. I appreciate you sharing all of that. It reminds me a lot of, the reconciliation that I had with myself when I realized I had attained and achieved everything that I set out for and I was miserable and what was I going to do about it? And I said to myself, we have so much I want to share. And ever since yeah. I have just been on a path of more joy and more happiness and more fulfillment and more confidence in who I am and the life that I'm living. I'm going to look for that Harvard study because it sounds fascinating. And yeah. I really appreciate you coming here today and sharing all of your wisdom and your experiences. I want to remind listeners they can find you at kathyheller.com and also on Instagram. It's with a C, kathy.heller and your podcast, the Kathy Heller Podcast. You also have a free five-day challenge that's coming up. Is that January 23rd through the 27th? Is that right? Yeah. So we're going to do a whole thing called Most Abundant Year. And we're going to talk about the science of changing the way that your thoughts are working. And we're going to talk about some of the action steps that you could take to feel the most free and abundant and joyful this year. And it's, yeah, it's free and it's very fun. I think that is fantastic way to start a year. <laughs> Much better than some of the toxic things that are happening in the world around yeah. us right now. Oh That's gosh. great. And listeners will be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, which is the best place to ask questions too. If you've loved the show and want to give us a high five, make sure that you are leaving a review, hitting the follow or subscribe button in whatever podcast you're listening so that others can find us as well. And also we put a list of resources in the show notes for you at realeverything.com. You'll find links to all the studies and, and articles that I mentioned, as well as some additional podcasts like the ones with Jeffrey Marsh. And we also did one in the Science of Abundance Mindset that I'll put in there for you as well, episode 319. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change. No one is perfect, but in listening and learning and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. 
Kathy, thank you for joining us on this and for being part of our journey to that self-improvement that is really just about empathy and gratitude and giving. I couldn't agree more. So thank you so much. Thank you for doing such a great job and having this amazing space to talk about these things. I really appreciated it. It was really one of the best conversations. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.